modern hollow earth theory had pretty auspicious beginnings, actually, once again demonstrating the far-reaching influence of Rosicrucianism and the Royal Society. In the 1690s, Edmund Halley, the astronomer with a comet named after him, who not only stumped up the money to publish Newton's Principia, but actually edited the galleys, proposed that the Earth was hollow, basing his calculations off of Principia, in fact, and publishing his findings in the Royal Society's Philosophical Transactions. According to this guy Standish, who wrote a history of hollow earth theory that seems relatively skeptical, Halley's hollow earth theory was one of the very first quote-unquote hypotheses based off of Newton's revolutionary ideas. Also, Halley published his hollow earth hypothesis in 1691, a year before the Salem witchcraft crisis, an ironic manifestation of the changing times. Some anterior hollow earth theorizing that may have influenced Halley's essay can be found in the works of Athanasius Kircher, specifically Magnus, his volume on magnets and electricity, and Mundus Subterraneus, which compiled Kircher's encyclopedic knowledge about geography, geology, and more esoteric concerns such as the dragons and giants inhabiting the underworld. Kircher was an erudite German Jesuit, by the way, backing up Nietzsche's characterization of the cavernous qualities of the German spirit. He was inspired, in part, by a visit to Naples, witnessing eruptions of the volcanoes Aetna and Stromboli, and even insisting on hiking to the mouth of Vesuvius where he was lowered into the active crater so he could gain that invaluable, eyebrow-singeing insight. Interestingly, as demonstrated by Kircher's Mundus, the notion of mouths positioned at the poles is older than Sims, who we'll discuss momentarily. Kircher's handling of the Earth's Hydraulics was influenced by an English encyclopedist named Bartholomew from the 14th century. Kircher believed that the icy ocean waters around the North Pole flow through a massive vortex and into the Earth, where they're heated by the quote-unquote inner sun before flowing back out at the South Pole at standing bathwater temp, something like that, or perhaps sizzling, I don't know. I haven't actually read Mundus. Here's the thing, though. On a scholastic, alchemical, and mystical level, these ideas make some sense. 
Kircher devised these systems in part because he believed all of creation adheres to a series of divinely designed forms. I could be wrong, but it seems like it was fairly common for Christian occultists of Kircher's type to view the human being as the ultimate reflection of the Creator, and therefore it would be natural for Kircher to try and find commonalities between the terrestrial and human anatomies, like mouth holes, <laughs> for example. Standish situates Haley's assertion of the Earth's hollowness within the flux of early enlightenment, juxtaposing it with massive advancements made in magnetic compasses, mechanical clockwork, lens crafting for micro-slash-telescopes, royal investment in the Greenwich Observatory, etc., the point being that Haley's claim wasn't as outlandish then as it sounds today, and that his research was a part of that massive wave of empiricism and scientific method kickstarted by Bacon and continued by Newton et al. Speaking of which, the basic gist is that Haley argued the Earth is a series of overlapping concentric spheres, each one turning independently on a north-south axis, a thought inspired by Haley's study of magnetic variation, a problem that had been irking sailors and scholars since the 12th century. As Standish writes, navigational concerns directly motivated Haley's research. By the way, as is common among proper cranks slash geniuses weighed down by their brilliance slash stupidity, Edmund Haley had an opium habit. He ain't the only one, folks. Perhaps I'll spill my personal poppies when we finally get to the episode on the Sino-American opium trade that's not too far off. Following Haley, the next major hollow-earth innovator would break ground on the American frontier around 130 years later. Captain John Cleve Sims began disseminating a circular professing the Earth's hollowness in 1818 in St. Louis, Missouri, capital of the newly purchased Missouri Territory. Once again, hollow Earth wasn't only fashionable, but the fancy of high society. Quick interjection. The mythic ideology of the Mandan tribes of the Dakotas holds that the people emerged from a system of caves some millennia ago. The Mandan are a tribe you might remember from previous episodes when we brought up bookish spook Peter Lavenda's revisionist argument that the Mandan are actually descended from the Welsh prince Madoc, 
a pet theory of American occultist types and British colonizers for the past few centuries that also connects to uh, Anglo-Israelism or Israelitism, whichever you call it, I can't quite remember. I'm no expert, but I'm going to believe whatever the Mandans say sooner than I'm going to buy these Welsh pre-Columbian transoceanic contact theories, especially when they start to verge on lost tribes of Israel territory. The Mandan aren't the only Native American tribe with traditional beliefs that contend their ancestry stems from under the earth. The Iroquois have similar beliefs. On the San Carlos Apache Reservation in Arizona, there are legends of tunnels leading deep into the earth and a realm populated by mysterious natives. And then you have the French explorer, Leclerc Milfort's expedition to a series of caves near the junction of the Mississippi and Red Rivers with a band of Muscogee. And evidently the Muscogee people also believed that their ancestors ascended from a subterranean world. On said expedition, Milfour claimed that the caves they discovered could easily hold anywhere between 15 to 20,000 people. But getting back to this Sims character, he wasn't just a military man himself, but the New Jersey-born grandson of a Revolutionary War veteran and Chief Justice. During the War of 1812, Sims himself would fight the British as first an ensign before eventually being elevated to the rank of captain. Following his service, he worked as a trader in St. Louis. After two years of frontier mercantilism, Sims published his pamphlet at the age of 38. As Standish speculates, he may have been unimpressed by the scant quote-unquote pecuniary benefits that trading was bringing him. It's interesting to note that Sims listed Baron Alexander von Humboldt as his protector. Sims bet his life on the existence of two massive openings, one at each pole, some 1,400 miles across and requested help in organizing an expeditionary party a hundred strong that would ride sleighs up from Siberia to the 82nd parallel and descend into the inner earth. Apologies for spoiling, but Captain John Cleve Sims obviously never made a pole hole approach himself. But... He did have a follower who got a little closer. We're not going to spend an inordinate amount of time on the details of Sim's journey, as we gotta get to the Nazis. Here's something interesting, though. It always traces back to the secret history of Massachusetts, baby. 
like the North Sea gurgling through the terrestrial sluice of the Earth's esophagus, saunaing in its belly and pouring out refreshed and rejuvenated on the other side. Standish believes that Captain Sim's hollow-earth beliefs may just have come from none other than Cotton Mather himself. Speaking of, a parapower mapping listener has recently requested a deeper dive into Cotton Mather's role in the history of inoculations in the United States and the Macy's Conference, so you may hear more about Mather in the not-so-distant-to-medium-distant future. Not to mention he and his father's interest in Kabbalism, which I've been planning to work in at some point. In Mather's The Christian Philosopher, an early general science text, Mather laid the groundwork for Sim's pole-hole speculations with a chapter on magnetism, discussing the historical trends of magnetic discovery. Mather references Edmund Haley, Isaac Newton, Roger Bacon, etc. Here's a quote. Quote, Sir Isaac Newton has demonstrated the moon to be more solid than our Earth, as nine to five. Why may we not then suppose four-ninths of our globe to be cavity? Mr. Haley allows there may be inhabitants of the lower story, and many ways of producing light for them. End quote. Captain Sims never undertook a theoretical defense of his hypotheses, but his apostle James McBride did, writing a text called Sims' Theory of Concentric Spheres in 1826. McBride offered early calc and trig wizard Leonard Euler as one point of reference for Sims. Another, the Scottish physicist and mathematician Sir John Leslie. Although Sims' theories are, e are easy to laugh off as batshit in retrospect, I think Standish's description of the underlying logic as quote-unquote tortured is an apt one. Sims' basic argument was that one of the most common forms in nature is the hollow sphere, and that hollow spheres are one of the basic building blocks of nature. He sought to improve upon Newton's universal law of gravitation by introducing an additional, almost elemental component that would explain why all matter doesn't just condense. His explanation being that the microscopic hollow spheres that fill the vacuous spaces of the universe act as a repulsive force, which he equated with the Aristotelian ether. I'm no philosopher or scientist, but his shit seems a little reminiscent of 
Leibniz's monads and other corpuscular theories that precipitated atomic. The other component of Sims's argument for hollowness inside Gaia is centrifugal force, which makes a modicum of sense. Another aspect of Sims's misguided theories are the mythological antecedents, like Hyperborea, for example, which ties in with our imminent discussion about Nazis and Hollow Earth. The ancient Greeks believed that a paradise exists behind the back of Boreas, the north wind, and that it's even where Apollo would vacay. All of this connects to Thule, another point of interest in this and subsequent episodes. As the Greek, Pythias would sail north of Britain in the 4th century BC, and claimed that he located a magical land called Thule, six days north of the Isles. Between hopes for a northwest passage and these mythic forebears, Standish contends that Sims's hope for a miraculous realm beyond the poles was very much attuned to the zeitgeist of his time. Sims departed St. Louis in 1819 and moved to Newport, Kentucky, where his legend spread and he began to be regarded as the quote-unquote Newton of the West, an unfortunate title conceived by enterprising boosters seeking to cash in on his notoriety. He started hanging at the Western Museum in Cincinnati, and even had a sketch drawn of him by Audubon. Although Sims never did defend his theory in the written word, he did devote himself to writing a fictional account of the discovery of an inner earth realm around this time, titled Simsonia, Voyage of Discovery. Standish lists a handful of literary inspirations, including Gulliver's Travels, Baron Ludwig Holborg's uh, Niels Kim, Dante's Inferno, etc. We have to briefly touch on one of these, though. Jacques Casanova's 1,800-page epic novel, Ecosamirin, which concerns siblings who fall through a quote-unquote watery abyss into the center of the earth, where they discover, quote, an inner world inhabited by many-colored hermaphroditic dwarves called Megamikris, who live in a color-coded social hierarchy with the red ones at the top of the heap. Their primary method of eating consists, oh my god, of sucking on each other's breasts. They're also nudists. Edward and Elizabeth, that's the siblings, promptly rip off their own clothes, declare themselves married, and set about propagating as fast as they can. Each year, during their 81-year stay, Elizabeth gives birth to twins. 
who in turn marry at age 12 and begin having their own twins. Finally, Ed and Liz make their way back to London, leaving behind millions of offspring. Not only do they cause a, a population glut down there, they screw up a previously balanced society in other ways as well, introducing gunpowder and war, among other things. End quote. Keep this piece of incestual Hollow Earth fiction off the YA shelves, folks. <laughs> the other element of Sim's whole thing was the exploration and colonization craze of the 19th century, too, of course. American man was desperate to find not yet pilfered land to wring every bit of economic juice out of. Sims went so far as lecturing in the Midwest and appealing for funding from Congress, but to no avail. In 1825, having heard the Russians were planning an expedition to the Arctic, he even sought approval to join the party through the American minister, but was unable to fund the journey. He made some converts here and there, and even managed to lecture as far as Harvard University and Quebec, but failing health caught up with him, and John Sims succumbed in 1829 at only 48. There's actually still a monument to our most hallowed hollow earther in his home of Hamilton, Ohio, though. One of John Sims' converts, Jeremiah Reynolds, would take up the polar expedition organizing and Hollow Earth mantle, lecturing in cities like Philly and Baltimore. His grand vision caught the ear of one sickly young man, a fellow named Edgar Allan Poe. In fact, one of Poe's very first publications a short story that won a $50 literary prize in 1833, was directly inspired by Sims Holes, titled Manuscript Found in a Bottle. It concerns a mariner who sailed down that most chasmous of causeways. Yeah, Hollow Earth would really stay in vogue throughout the 19th century, Ever hear of a dude named Jules Verne? Heard he wrote a book about it. You might remember from one of the Amork episodes that we briefly covered Koresh Reed Teed, the New York doctor, alchemist, and distant relative of Joseph Smith, who was similarly a self-professed prophet. Actually, Messiah, more accurately. Koreshanity as his cult began to be called, upheld beliefs in cellular cosmogony, a fancy name for hollow earth, save that, contrary to human beings living on the face of the earth with a subterranean realm inside, in Koresh's vision we actually inhabit the concavity. He also believed the sun is a battery-powered contraption, 
the Qureshians' other practices included communal living, celibacy, alchemy, etc., a quintessential New Thought mixture. Well, get this. One of the variants of Hollow Earth that made its way over to Nazi Germany and which directly precipitated an infamous experiment in the Baltic Sea jutted off from the rocky insanity that was Reed Teed's belief system. A German World War I pilot named Peter Bender was shot from the sky and imprisoned in a French POW camp for the remainder of the war. One day, likely dying from boredom, Bender discovered a copy of Teed's magazine, The Flaming Sword, in a dust mite nest of discarded magazines and books. Bender became a major acolyte of Teed's and began to preach the hollow earth gospel to all who would listen. Interestingly, he and his wife began working as English and mathematics teachers at schools in Frankfurt, intended for Jewish immigrants. I haven't looked into the history, but possibly an early manifestation of the Third Reich's anti-Semitic policies. A Jewish woman that studied under them even ended up traveling to Estero, Florida, and joining the remaining Koreshian unity folks down there, where she would remain a vital member of the cult until its eventual demise some decades ago. As for Bender, though, it appears that he was feckless and soon sought the approval of the Nazi leadership despite helping his previous student make it to the United States. Nazi geologists and astronomers were unimpressed, but as we shall soon see in a separate series, there were elements in the Nazi party much more susceptible to occult-inflected, quote-unquote, out-there ideas. In fact, announcement, I've decided that we're going to use this early foray into Nazi hollow earth theory as a jumping-off point to do a comparative paranoid analysis of the history of Nazi occultism. Back to Bender, though. Sometime after helping his Jewish pupil, Hedwig Michel, to immigrate and assimilate into the Koreshians, Bender proclaimed in one of his many articles that, quote, this is a shitty quote, but here we go, uh, an infinite universe is a Jewish abstraction. A finite, rounded universe is a thoroughly Aryan conception, end quote. Bender had served with Luftwaffe commander Hermann Göring, and Göring didn't forget wacky Peter. The Nazi party had already swallowed 
Helena Blavatsky's theosophical reimaginings of the ancient Greek and Roman legends regarding the terra incognita known as Hyperborea, as well as the Tula Gesellschaft's reworking of Thule, in essence the Aryan Atlantis, from which they took their name. Tula Gesellschaft being Tula Society. Aesthetically similar and riffing off of some of these beliefs, there was also Hans Hobbiga's Cosmic Ice Theory. Hans, an Austrian mining engineer and inventor, proclaimed that all of the planets and the moon are celestial bodies coated in massive sheets of ice hundreds of miles thick. Horbiga believed that the Earth had quote-unquote captured four successive moons, slowly dragging their orbits ever closer, and that each moon's catastrophic collision with the planet caused a deluge and then a subsequent ice age the survivors of which were always deified by their descendants. So the four beliefs just outlined Tula, Hyperborea, Cosmic Ice, and Cellular Cosmogony were just a few of the hollow earth or adjacent beliefs that were percolating through the upper stratum of Nazi society. And then you had the Nazi expedition, organized by Himmler, that aimed to reach the subterranean paradise of Shamhala in Tibet. Himmler believed that the Nazis' destiny lay to the east, an interesting distillation of earlier Orientalism in occult organizations like the OTO and Theosophy. Of these, it seems that Tula, Hyperborea, and Horbiger's cosmic ice theory were especially popular, as they cohered better with the Nazi veneration of Nordic tradition and Teutonic myth. Bender's connection to Goring eventually led to the Nazis' Naval Research Institute calling on Bender and his theory, deciding to test its practical applications in the Baltic Sea, the idea being that if the Earth is in fact a concave cavity, you could aim state-of-the-art photographic and telescopic equipment into the air and view the uh, other side or um, parts of the globe that would be positioned above you, in essence. The Nazis hoped that this would lend them a strategic advantage, enabling them to spy the location of British Navy vessels from afar. Before this expedition would get off the ground, though, another one directly inspired by Bender failed to get airborne. Early in the Nazification process, an engineer named Mengering in the city of Magdeburg appealed to his city's council for funds to subsidize the launching of a rocket 
intended to prove Bender and Koresh's theory. The year was 1933, and rocket technology was a far cry from where it would be by the advent of the V-2 later in the war. Mengering received the funds from the city's council and went to work, but the end result was a slapstick failure. First, the rocket failed to launch during test runs, and then, after postponing the launch by a few weeks and assiduously deciding to make the launch unmanned, contrary to initial plans, the rocket caught on the launch pad and ended up flying across Magdeburg. I don't know if I'm pronouncing that correctly. It took off, parallel to the ground, before finally coming to a rest a few thousand feet away. If Bender had been clued in to possible portents, perhaps his acolyte's early failure would have convinced him to drop his quote-unquote whole welt Lehre. I don't know if I'm pronouncing that correctly either. I don't speak German, but basically Hollow Earth doctrine and or Hollow Earth theory. Maybe he would have stopped his proselytizing, but he was in too deep, and his quest to prove it would end in disaster. So, after trying and failing to use pendulums for a time to locate British warships, the Nazi leadership decided to entertain Bender in 1942. At Bender's recommendation, the Naval Research Institute in Berlin put together a costly expedition at a crucial turning point in the war, sending a team of scientists outfitted with infrared photography equipment to Rügen Island in the Baltic, the idea being that Infrared rays weren't affected by the curious atmospheric qualities of the hollow earth that caused it to appear convex. Speaking of Rügen Island, it's the largest isle off the northern coast of Germany. Prior to the expedition and during the earlier days of the Reich, Hitler undertook a massive development project to transform the island into a Nazi quote-unquote holiday camp that they planned to call the Colossus of Prora, an interesting choice of name that hints at the Greco influence on the Nazis or perhaps a simple hubristic desire to outdo the wonders of the ancient world. They began building this massive queue of beachfront apartment complexes, but the project was ultimately abandoned sometime during the war. As for this expedition, though, led by a physicist named Dr. Hans Fischer, and under Goring's approval, the team aimed their special telescopic cameras at 45-degree angles from the chalk cliffs of Rügen and began photographing the sky. 
the British Navy was nowhere to be seen, but I'm sure they captured plenty of gorgeous snapshots of the empty deep blue. Realizing that the expedition was an utter failure, the team was scuttled and summoned home, and the Nazi high command was scandalized, which led to Bender, his wife, and some of their most ardent followers being sent to death camps where they were killed. So that was the end of cellular cosmogony's popularity among the Nazi elite, at least. But even if the Nazi leadership felt that a concave cellular Earth with a quote-unquote phantom universe in the center had been disproved beyond a shadow of a doubt, hollow Earth persisted. Oh shit, I just came across something that sheds a whole new light on Pynchon's use of Turn und Taxis. Prince Turn und Taxis was arrested with five other members of the Tula Society slash German Order Wallwater of the Holy Grail. Following the Palm Sunday Putsch, a far-right Tula Society insurrection led by Rudolf von Sabatendorf, who we've mentioned in connection to the right of Memphis Misraim and Crowley, a count and member of the Thule Gesellschaft, assassinated Kurt Eisner, the president of the Socialist Republic, called the People's State of Bavaria that was attempting to form in the vacuum following the fall of the Kaiser's Republic. The Thule Society followed up Eisner's assassination with the Palm Sunday Putsch, to use Lavenda's phrasing, an abortive attempt to create a far-right anti-communist government that ended in bloodshed. This in turn led to the aforementioned Prince Turn und Taxis, who participated, getting arrested by the Red Army. All six conspirators, including Turn und Taxis, were forced up against a wall and executed by rifle fire. In Lavenda's opinion, this was the worst mistake the Red Army could have made. It's weird the way Lavenda talks out of both sides of his mouth, though, especially for a self-avowed Nazi hunter and stormer of Colonia Dignidad. What would you propose that we do with crypto-pagan proto-Nazis, Peter? Keep this anecdote regarding the Tula Society and Turnun Toxis in mind for these upcoming episodes covering Nazi occultism, though, eh? Getting back to Hollow Earth, connected to very real Nazi escapes using tunnels, Lavenda's rat lines, Angleton's vessel affair, and quote-unquote Nazi railroad etc. Shortly after VE Day, stories began to spread that Hitler himself hadn't actually committed suicide and had instead escaped. 
As Walter Kafton Minkel writes, the theories began quote-unquote logically enough, fueled by the sudden prevalence of UFO sightings in the post-war years and the Air Technical Intelligence Command of the U.S. Air Force's examination of the Nazis' cutting-edge aeronautics research near the end of the war. Setting aside possible PSYOP explanations, the Air Force concluded that the sighted craft couldn't be of Nazi or extraterrestrial origin, which leaves open an obvious explanation, but we aren't weighing in on the UFO debate, especially from nearly 80 years ago. This component of the theories relates to the oft-reported stories from Allied pilots of witnessing inexplicable quote-unquote lights and or aircraft during the war, which began to be colloquially called Foo Fighters. Theories began to circulate that Hitler had not only faked his suicide using a body double, and escaped his compound via secret tunnels, but that Adolf had boarded either a submarine fleet deemed a, quote, impenetrable Shangri-La, end quote, by Nazi Admiral Dunitz in a speech that may be fabricated from whole cloth in other versions, Hitler clambered into cutting-edge Nazi UFO technology. Also, depending on the version, he, a coterie of the most brilliant scientists and his most dedicated followers, travel to Argentina, Patagonia, and or on to Antarctica. In one version regarding Hitler's escape, he and his followers colonize the inner Earth. But this time, their numbers have billowed to like 750,000 or a million, a mass Nazi exodus. Bye, bitch! Some of the writers trafficking in these harebrained theories include Ruppelt and Barton, Barton specifically reporting that Hitler, much of the high command, and some 750 million marks made it to Argentina via U-boat. And of course, Ray Palmer of Science Mysteries and Flying Saucers magazines got in on the party right around the time that he too was preaching the Hollow Earth Gospel by printing the Shaver Stories a schlocky and slightly schizo depiction of Lemurian legends. The Shaver stories precipitated Hollow Earth's entrance into film and television, of which examples from the 1950s abound, such as the very first Superman movie featuring Mole Men, an adaptation of Jules Verne's Journey to the Center of the Earth, etc., one element of Barton's claims that is worth considering would be the inclusion of Victor Schauberger's purportedly electromagnetic and saucer-shaped prototypes that he supposedly built for the Luftwaffe in 1940, 
which Barton compared to the descriptions of flying saucers from witness testimonials and the blurry photos making the newspaper rounds at the time. Although it's easy to laugh at Barton's clumsy logic, vague structural similarities between the two, and the accompanying argument that the UFOs materializing in the American night skies confirmed the continued existence of the Nazi leadership and their removal to an Antarctic or polar Aryan underworld. The reality of Operation Paperclip and the American plundering, appropriation, and assimilation of Nazi technologies, research, scientists, and spy networks hints at the possibility of a darker reality that isn't miles off Barton's outlandish theories, maybe just a little closer to home. To make any semi-reasonable assessment without regressing into blind conspiracy theorizing requires reams and reams of research, which is partly why we are launching this new accompanying miniseries exploring the history of Nazi occultism, numerous orders, and their influence on the emergence of Nazism the various economic and political conditions that precipitated World War II, the relationship between the Third Reich and the American Empire, etc. All Hit Radio! All right, you're listening to All Hit Radio, and it's 53 degrees at 13 minutes past the hour, and right now in our all-request line, I've got Mike Ledgerwood on the phone. Hey, babe, what would you like to hear? Hey, babe, I'm sorry. I can't hear you too well. You're going to have to speak a little closer into the phone. Okay, babe, what would you like to hear again? We are observing your Earth. Hey, Mike, I'm sorry, babe, but that's not on our playlist. And by the way, you sound great over the phone. Anyway, if you give us your request, we'll be glad to play it for you, babe. So let's hear it. We are observing your Earth. Oh, uh, listen, Mike, I'm sorry, babe, but we can't... And we'd like to make... I'm sorry, Mike, we... There's... A contact uh, with you... In your mind you have capacities, you know To telepath messages through the vast unknown Please close your eyes and concentrate With every thought you think Upon the recitation we're about to sing Calling occupants of interplanetary craft Calling occupants of interplanetary most extraordinary craft
We are.